Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Eagle. If you're a guest with us, especially glad that you're here and all those joining us online want to say welcome to you. And you got a little snapshot there of one of the things that's a really big deal for us. Why does the student team leading us in worship and our student leaders up here talking about mission trips and Ignite, it's a, it's a central part of what we're doing as a church. We say around here we're about three things, discipleship, missions, and next gen. And this morning you're kind of getting a front row seat to what that's all about. And I'm super grateful for all, not only the two leaders that are on stage here, but all the student leaders and all you adults who pour in to the next gen so well. So way to go. Open up your Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel 5, you can pull out your bulletin note sheet as well. Um, you can get the uh, electronically, download our app. You can get the notes that way. Your online host, those of you joining online, can show you how to get the notes that way. We're in this series on the life of David, and we left David off standing beside a great emptiness and weeping last week. We talked about the four movements of lament, learning how to grieve our losses well. And it's not a question of whether we'll be standing beside a great emptiness in our life, because it's a part of the human experience. We will experience grief and loss. The question is, when we get there, how will we respond? And I hope last week's discussion with David, he had just lost two loved ones, Saul and Jonathan, and he moves to call the nation to the Bible word lament, which is simply a word that means to grieve our losses in such a way that we're honest and authentic, but don't define us. And so there's a part of just this grieving and standing beside a great emptiness. And if you weren't a part of that last week and you find yourself in the middle of that or helping others work through it, you can uh, watch that message that way. Because that's where we left David off. It's not just grieving the loss of a loved one. It could be grieving the loss on the job front and the financial front, on the home front. There could be all kinds of losses that we experience and we have to grieve and learn how to navigate those well. And we're going to pick that up now from David. Here's the next section of David's story. So Saul has passed away. Who was Saul? First king of Israel. David's now the newly second king, so now he's going to ascend to the throne, and here's what we see happen, 2 Samuel chapter 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler." When the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Verse 4, David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. So if you remember, backdrop, right, 1 Samuel 16, where we started the series several months ago, David was 17, around 17 years old, when he was anointed as the successor to Saul. Remember that ceremony where Samuel was there and all of his older brother, all of David's older brothers passed, out, passed by and the Lord said, no, I pick you, David. So David's 17 when he's selected to be Saul's successor. And now how old is, is he when he goes to the throne? 30. So for 13 years, what's going on in that 13 years? What have we been looking at? He's been surviving, right? 
because Saul's decided as David's kind of uh, popularity ascended, Saul's been increasingly insecure, so he wants to take David out. So David runs to the desert, runs and hides. He's been going to En Gedi and to the caves and to the deserts. He's been running and hiding primarily alone, but then he gathers a band around him that he begins to lead. But for 13 years, and isn't this another great window like students? I want you to think about, this is another great picture for students for you to think about stewarding your 20s well, because as you steward your earlier decades well, it'll serve you well in building the breadth that'll come later. So what happens is we want to see our earlier decades build depth so that our later decades, as they become broader, there's a substance, there's a character, there's a strength in here to uphold the weight of whatever is entrusted to you down the road. And I think we're struggling as a culture. We're so enamored in, in pushing our youth out so fast. We're, have, we're trying to encourage our 20-somethings to live like they're never going to see 30. And that's not healthy. And you're pushing your 30-somethings like you're never going to see 40. That's not super helpful. And what happens is then people are being thrust into positions of responsibility and leadership and all this, but haven't taken the time to develop the depth and the beams of the interior world, that scaffolding on the inside, to uphold the weight of whatever responsibility is entrusted to you. So students, I think that David is a great profile for many of you around age 17, 18, like Evan was saying up here, huge change going on in a lot of their lives. To look at what happened with David, David spent from 17 to 30, and I think in God's eyes, God was building some things on the inside. He was deepening some wells there because he knew where David was headed. His, David's life from this point forward is going to spread out in influence and responsibility Certainly not going to be perfect about it. He's going to make plenty of mistakes. We're about to head to one of his biggest ones coming up in a few weeks. But the point being is God was preparing David for what was to come. And I think there's this patient preparation in our lives that's really important to learn from David's story. Remember, David's not an ideal life, but a real life. A real man worshiping a real God who makes real mistakes in his relationship with God, but he always turns this compass north back to God. And from 17 to 30, I suspect when we get to visit with David in glory, he's going to talk about the deserts, he's going to talk about the caves, he's going to talk about that time when he was alone and he was running and he was hiding and he was wondering why so long. And by the time he got into his 30s, I suspect he looked back and saw all of those wells that were drilled down deeply. So students, that's what I, like what Ian was saying about, uh, in his time this week in Silence and Solitude. He's given you a great picture there, students, about what does it mean to leverage your 20-somethings well? It's to carve out depth in your relationship with God, depth in the Word, depth in prayer, depth in stillness and silence. You've got to have those wells go down deep because your lives are about to spread out beyond your 20s and forward that you're going to need to draw upon that. And if it doesn't happen that way, when giftedness outpaces character, whew, it just implodes a matter of time. And we don't need a lot of commentary on that because we've got plenty of that going on in our world around us. Where there's no lack of giftedness out there, the problem is we've thrust out with giftedness, but there's been no interior character developed to maintain and stay pace with the giftedness. And students, you have an opportunity to lead and rule in righteousness to go into our world and to make change, but it's primarily going to be built on what's in here. And that's why I think David's life is such a great picture for us. And if you want to like 
If you just nutshell the difference between Saul and David, I would argue that it was primarily a gap of interior world difference. Remember Saul? How did Saul exit? How did he die? He took his own life. He's one of the four suicides in the Bible. So Saul goes out on a bed of suicide, and what does it say of David, how he exits? The book of Acts says, David fulfilled his purpose in his generation, and then he died. Not perfectly, I'm saying, but he fulfilled his purpose. You want to see a gap between Saul and David? I would argue the gap wasn't about giftedness. They were both incredibly gifted guys, both entrusted with tremendous responsibility. How did one fade so, so fast and end on a bed of suicide, and how did the other fulfill God's purpose in his generation? I want to argue that I think it had to do with the 13 years from 17 to 30 where some things got built on the inside, that it was about the scaffolding of the interior world that maintained it. And that's what we're going to see on display now in this next section of David's story. So that's why we read 2 Samuel 6, the following things, how differently David is handling his leadership than what Saul had been doing. Verse 1, 2 Samuel 6, David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. Do you see the amount of influence and leadership, how rapidly it's growing? So we went from like a band of 600, which weren't the easiest 600 to lead. Remember that discussion? There were quite a handful to lead, but God was using that to prepare him for the day when what? He's got to oversee 30,000. And verse 2, he and all his men set out from Baal, Judah, to bring them up there, from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. So this is the first time, have you noticed we haven't had many conversations about the ark of God, which is so ironic in its significance. So the ark of God, here's a, here's a picture, I put it in your notes there. The ark of God was about four feet in length, do we have a picture up there? Two feet in depth and width, right? So there's, there's a kind of an artist rendering of it, gold-plated. Those are the angels. They said the cherubim, and in between the cherubim, where their wings tipped together, they call that the mercy seat, where the very, they believe the very presence of God dwelt. This was a very significant symbol for the people of God. So the ark of God. Now inside there, inside the ark, they had three things, and I put them in your notes. Inside the ark, there were tablets of stone from Mount Sinai. It represented how God had commanded them. There were jars of manna from the wilderness, how God provided for them. And then there was Aaron's rod, which represented how God saved them. Do you see how significant this piece was? So inside there, there was Sinai. Huh? Inside there, there, there have this picture, right, of jars of manna when they were out in the wilderness. And then there's Aaron's rod. And so the ark of God, you need to think ark of God equal presence of God. So Israel, God's people, moving into Jerusalem, God's city, led by David, God's leader, and now the ark of God kept all that before them. The ark of God kept the presence of God before them. And here's the irony. It's been gone for Saul's entire reign, and we don't see any, it's in here, nothing preserved where Saul's like, hey, do you think we ought to go get the ark of God? 30 to 40 years, it's been gone. David's not even on the job 30 to 40 hours. And you see what he says? Hey, we got to go get the ark. You see that? We got to get the ark of God. David, it's with the Philistines, and you know, you've got a lot of history with them. This isn't going to go well, you know, kind of. Remember the Philistines? Remember Goliath? Remember that whole story? Philistines, that's where the ark is. It's been in captivity 30 to 40 years. David's now on the throne. He says, go get the ark of God. Because we're the people of God, we're the city of God, I'm the leader God has appointed, and the ark of God keeps all of that before us. You see this? This is very significant. 
in the storyline. The very first thing he moves out and he does is say, get the ark before us. And so today we're going to have like a little priority checkpoint, two checkpoints on evaluating priorities here. And the first one is rooted right here in David's response. Look in verse 3 now. They set the ark of God on a new cart, we'll come back to that, and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. Look at verse 5. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating, underline this in your Bibles, with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. So get the, this is David now. I mean, David's worshiping. I mean, the king is leading the worship gathering here as they're retrieving the ark, as they're bringing it back to the city of God with the people of God. He's keeping the presence of God before them with the ark, and David is worshiping. So I think it's a great checkpoint for us. I, I wrote in my notes the priority of the presence of God. This is a checkpoint for us today. The priority and the passion for the presence of God. Of God. And worship is one expression of a passion for the presence of God. Notice David, how it's, his worship is classified. I called it like with all your might kind of worship, not casualness in worship. With all your might kind of worship, like strike up the band, fill up the choir kind of worship, like a work up the sweat, engage your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength kind of worship. It's that kind of worship. Do you see what's flowing out of the heart of God here? David knew God had created him. God had called him to this. God had provided him. God had guided him. God had God before him. David knew all of this. And that God was, the, and he said, so we're the people of God. We're in the city of God. I'm the leader God has called a point. Hey, we've got to get the ark of God because without God, we cannot. Without God, we will not. Get the ark. Do you see that's a passion for the presence of God? We can't go forward without God. For 30 or 40 years, they've been trying to go forward without him. That way, under Saul's leadership, David says, hey, I can't do any of this job without the presence of the Lord with me. I put in my notes, and I left it for you in your notes, I think this is kind of the new math of grace with David. I'll call it worship math. Everything minus God equals nothing. That's worship math. Or another way to say it is, right, nothing plus God equals everything. That's, I think, what David's saying. With all his might, he's working. Go get the ark of God from the Philistines. We're the people of God. We need the presence of God before us because if we don't have that, we're nothing. We've got nothing without him. David says, success without presence, capital P, is not an option. Do you see that? For Saul, success without presence, I don't think he was too preoccupied with that. But for David, success without the P, capital presence, hey, hey, not an option. And so, church, today I want us to kind of do a little priority check on the role of worship and our passion for the presence of God. We don't have an ark-like thing like that now on this side of the cross and with the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have this picture of God with us by the Holy Spirit. But worship, worship is a declaration of reality, have you thought about this? Now, worship is when we get together and when we worship God, it's a declaration of the way things really are. 
Like God is God and we are not. Do you know worship helps reset that? Because we can get, I can get super confused during the week about all these roles. I'm sure others can as well. We get all confused about who's God and who's not. Do you know what worship does? Worship declares reality. It's the way things, real. I like what Dallas Willard says, and I put this in your notes. Reality is what you can count on. It's what you run into when you're wrong. Think about that. For some of you, that's a commentary on your week. When you're going the wrong way and you're doing the wrong things, do you know what you run into? Reality. The way things really are. Worship helps us that. This is like, so for us, when we get together and worship, and hopefully it's an all-your-might kind of worship, hopefully it's as the team leads us and they get here at 6.30 in the morning. Why? Not because they're practicing music. Practice. They're, here, they're, here, they're like David with the troop around the ark. They're here to help put their gifts and skills together. What to call us to reset for us a passion for the presence of God. Why does our worship team, our band, our vocalists, our tech team, why do they give so much time and energy for it? Is it to perform music? It's to lead in worship. It's to proclaim reality. It's to say, this is how it really is. God is supreme. I am not. God is ultimate authority. I am not. God is the center of all. I am not. Do you know worship sets that? Worship reminds me like right sizes and puts us in our right roles. And it reframes our reality. And David's like, for the people of God, he says, go get the ark of God. Bring it to the city of God. Because we've got to put the presence of God before us. Because we've got to keep our roles straight in all this. Without God, we're nothing. We've got no shot without him. You see that? And I think, I hope and pray that when we get together on Sunday mornings in our worship experiences, not just in this room, but in the loft and in the lower level, my hope and prayer is that this would be one of the things that I think when we come together like this, I hope and pray that what happens sometimes is you come in from whatever kind of week you've had, and maybe there's been all kinds of things that clouded up the picture of reality. And maybe through the songs that are sung, or the prayers that are prayed, or the scripture that's read, or the message that's preached, all of a sudden that fog kind of begins to settle, and you just start seeing things a little more clearly. You just start going, that's right. That's who God is. That's who I am. That's how this works. God's got this. He will not leave me. He will not forsake me. He's my rock. He's my refuge. He's my fortress. He's my hope. It's right. And inside of you, there's something that just happens. It's like a realignment. I hope this happens to you. It happens to me. Maybe it just happens to me because I'm pastor around here. I don't know. But I hope it happens to all of you that there's a realignment. That you leave and you go out into your week and you go, I'm a little more centered. I'm a little more squared away on how all this is supposed to go. And that's what the ark of God does to the people of God. Keeps the presence of God in the city of God before them at all times in all ways. And I like what Calvin Miller said. I put this quote in your notes as well. He says, most people don't come to church to get answers to questions that are bothering them. They might think they do. What they really are coming for, listen to this, is to be put in touch with another world which they know exists, but they have lost touch of it themselves. They are hungering for an encounter with the living God. So I think a barometer for us on a great worship gathering isn't 
oh, what an amazing worship band we have, or what an amazing worship leader, or what a great message it was. I hope at the end of the day, the real barometer on a great worship sir, what an amazing God. God is great. God is glorious. God is awesome. There is none like him. That at the end of the day needs to be the barometer. And everything that happens up here or in the loft or children's rooms or in the atrium, everybody's serving is to that end that God is great. Without him, we got no shot. God plus what? How does the new math work? Boy, that's working out really well right here. So I, let, me, let me just re-say it, all right? Okay, so nothing plus God equals everything. Everything minus God equals nothing. That's the new math of grace, new math of worship. To say it even shorter, God is every, he, he's, he's the defining reality that we run into. And hopefully when we gather in Sunday morning times, it resets and reframes us. Much like I suspect for the nation of Israel in 2 Samuel 6, there was probably this moment where they see their king, they see him worshiping, they see the ark, and they're like, wow, there's just like this fog that's settling. Like, how did we miss this for 30 or 40 years? I know for me growing up, it was like I was like 17 years old, and I remember sitting in a church service, and the pastor was standing up front, and it was like, I think he was preparing us maybe for Easter week, if I remember right, and it was like he was talking about Good Friday and communion, all that, and I remember sitting there going, how did I miss this? For 17 years of my life, I didn't really, I thought Good Friday was just the day everybody got off from school and people were excited about getting out of work, like TGIF on steroids is what I thought Good Friday was. And I'm like, oh, Good Friday is about, oh my goodness, Jesus and the cross and death. And I mean, it was just one of those moments where go, how did I miss this? See, it was, reality is what I run into. When I'm going, I'm going the wrong road and I run into what? I run into the way it's supposed to be. It's like, ah, oh, I think that for the nation of Israel with David is the ark of God's coming back, presence of God, people of God, city of God. That's right. Without God, we cannot. Without God, we will not. That's the declaration. And that's our declaration as Eagle Church. Without God, we cannot. What in the world are we trying to do without Him? Without God, we will not. We can't go forward without the Lord. Our mission, our vision, our value, what are we trying to do as a community? Without God, we cannot. Without God, we will not. So we got to keep the ark of God, the presence of God, the passion of God, the worship of God before us as the people of God, always. So checkpoint for us. How are we today? How am I today with a passion for the presence of God? Second checkpoint is in verse 6. Notice what happens next. Kind of one of those moments in the story where you go, ooh. Verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor. Now, that's not common language for us to Threshing floor, I want you to think of it as a large slab of rock where they would take the wheat and the straw and they would separate it. Large slab of rock, wheat and straw were separated. So there would be a lot of residue of wheat and straw around the threshing rock. Think about that when you read this next thing. Threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah, reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Why did the oxen stumble? What do you think they saw? They saw some, they saw some of the leftovers from the separation of the green and the stalk and the, and the chaff and all that, and they, just like 
If you're leading oxen anywhere, right, and they see some food, they kind of get diverted. It's a big slab of rock. The cart hits the rock. What's on the cart is the ark. Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark. Sounds like a really noble thing to do. Verse 7, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. So David dances in verse 5, Uzzah dies in verse 7. David dances, Uzzah dies. David dancing, passion for the presence of God. That's the first priority checkpoint. Uzzah dying, second priority checkpoint is a reverence for the holiness of God. You say, well, what is all this about, Eric? It seems like that's a pretty noble thing for Uzzah to do. It seems like it's a little bit of an overreaction on God's part. We're not giving any details apart from the backdrop of the way God wanted the ark to be handled, which I suspect God's trying to teach them, make sure you handle it the way I want it handled. So the backdrop on what, the way they were supposed to handle the ark, and I put in your notes, Deuteronomy 10 is where you can write down, the Lord explains who should carry the ark. So Deuteronomy 10, he said, only the Levites are to carry the ark. Uzzah's not a Levite. Exodus 25, he says the Levites are to carry it with poles. Do you remember the picture you had with the poles, the carrying poles? So the ark was supposed to be carried like they would carry other royalty where they would put them on the shoulders of the men and the kings would enter their cities being carried like that. He wanted the ark carried that way to represent, right, the kingship and authority of God over his people. The cart was a Philistine addition. The Philistines carried the ark around on a cart. So back in the text when it said they had to get a new cart, ooh, right there, somebody should have been, uh, somebody should have been raising their hand, uh, you know, maybe pulling out Exodus 25 or maybe looking at Deuteronomy 10 and going, hey, I don't know that we should go the cart route, that's the Philistine way. We better do it the Lord's way, get the carrying poles, get the Levites. Do you see this? So I think there's holiness. Holiness is a Bible word to describe purity. It's, holiness is this picture of the way, th- the way God wants things to be. Like Holiness describes how God always does the right thing every time. God cannot and will not make a mistake. Holiness, purity. Now stay with me here. So there's this character of holiness around God. So when sin or unholiness enters the presence of holiness, what happens? The unholiness has to get burned away. Like, God can't just wink at sin. He can't just go, ah, it's okay, Uzzah, it'll be fine. He can't do that because if he allows unholiness into the presence of holiness, it's no longer holy. Are you with me? I know this is end of July, but it's a, right? So unholiness into holiness, it doesn't become, then it loses the property called holy, pure, set apart, separate. So God has to maintain this. When he set up the ark of God to be carried this way, to be handled this way, it reinforced the presence of God to the people of God in the city of God. And he said, you got to handle it with purity because if it gets impure into pure, the pure then is contaminated. And so God says, I suspect David was leading a little funeral eulogy around holiness at Uzzah's funeral. We're not told anything about Uzzah's memorial service. I think David is probably talking about holiness. 
and about how we can't go about God's work the Philistines' way. I think about in my life how many times I try to go about things my way or the world's way, and God's like, that's not, that's not how this works, Simpson. You do my work my way. And so for Uzzah, though it looks like such a swift and harsh, I think it's in this reverence for the holiness of God, that respecting the way God wants things to be done and should be done. And do you see then why Jesus is like, if we needed any more motivation to cling to the beauty of the grace of Jesus and the cross, it's a story like this. Because none of us waltz in a worship gathering, right, completely clean. And yet, what is it, how is it that we can come into the presence of God and worship the glory of God and not be struck dead like Uzzah beside the ark of God because it's Jesus, you know? Jesus said, I will stand. Do you see that the beauty of the gospel here? Jesus will come and stand in our place, in perfection before a holy God, and he will bear the brunt of all of our imperfection. That's how we can enter God's courts. That's how we can enter a worship gathering. That's how we can pray. That's how we can draw near through the blood of Jesus, through the sacrifice of Jesus. Like without Jesus, we've got no chance to draw near to God. He's holy. He's perfect. He's pure. And we're not we're far from that. And if you're married, all you got to do is ask your spouse. There's a long list of all the ways that you're far from that. We're not. Or if you're working at work, ask your coworkers. Ask, ask your roommates. We're not perfect. We, 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 we fall short. And then there's this pure and holy God who's calling us to worship and to draw near and to live our lives with him. How? Jesus. Jesus comes and says, hey, I'll stand in the gap. I'll live the life you could never live. I'll die the death you could never die. I'll bear the brunt of it that you could never bear. And then you can stand in the presence of a holy God, bold through the blood of Christ. How amazing is that? When we take our last breath here, are you kidding me? To be ushered into the fullness of the present? I mean, without Jesus, we've got no shot. It's just Uzzah. Without Jesus, we're Uzzah. Boom. Done. Holiness, we're not, we enter it, boom. It's why the high priests, once a year before Jesus was on the scene, they had one little spot, ark of God, presence of God. They called it the seat of the mercy seat, the seat of atonement. Once a year, the high priest got to go behind the curtain, back to the ark of God, in the presence of God, and to offer a sacrifice for the blood of the people. If they didn't do it properly, the high priest dropped over dead behind the curtain. The problem was, who was going to go get the dead body? Who, were you going to volunteer? Hey, we need you to go get, you know, priest so-and-so, but he's dead. But, well, so they figured out, they're going to tie a rope to him. They tied a rope to him, and they put a bell on him. It was bad news if the bell started ringing, or stopped ringing. If the bell went silent, uh-oh. What's all that about? Holiness. They went in, per, whole, pure, perfect. I mean, the reverence for the holy. They're, how would you like that assignment? Something tells me the night, but I don't think there was a lot of restful sleep the night before that day for that high priest. 
Tomorrow, I'm going to what? I'm going to walk into the presence of God, the ark of God, sacrifice on behalf of the people. I'm going to do it the Lord's way. And if, it, and if unholiness came in con- now when Jesus, when he's on the cross, you get that picture, right? The New Testament, when Jesus is breathing his last, what does it say? The veil of the temple tore in two. Guess what veil that is? That's that veil. We're only the high priest, only once a year, went behind that veil. Lots of them dropped over dead, drug out by the rope, send the next one in. That veil right there, it rips open. What do you think the people of God did then? They ran. Why? Whoa! And Jesus, see, when Jesus breathed his last, ripped it open, and that's us today. Unhindered access to the King of Kings and to the Lords of Lords. By the blood of Jesus. Amazing picture. Rooted right here in David's storyline. Last section here. And they'll call us for one final question. David's upset. Naturally so. He lost another good friend, Uzzah. More grief and loss. So he says, wait, 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 wait. Stop the ark, like stop. He was smart enough to go, don't, don't just keep doing what I've been doing, which you know that's quite foolish, right? If you just keep doing what you've been doing, expect different results. We've all heard that saying. David's like, stop. Just, we got to figure out what's up with the Lord here on this because clearly this isn't the way God wants it handled. So the ark goes to the house of a guy in this chapter. You can see his name there. Is Obed, do you see it there? There's this picture, right? Verse 12 and following says, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom, the ark goes there for 90 days. Listen to this. Obed-Edom's line was so blessed from that 90 days, there are 62 generations of princes that serve in the line of Obed-Edom, the house of Israel. 62 from 90 days. So the ark goes to Obed-Edom's house. He's like just supposed to take care of it, like handling, obviously was handling it the proper way. Three months, David's like, okay, I think I've figured out where we've got off track here. And Obed-Edom's, so he says, let's go get it. So David went down, verse 12, and and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Can you imagine that scene? I'm just pictured David going to that guy's house. That had to be unbelievable. Like, the fact that the guy answered the door would have been, like, you, oh, you're alive. That's super helpful. Like, you pro- 90 days you've been with the ark. Uzzah didn't make it 90 minutes. He's got something straightened out, and he probably sat down, and I suspect he might have talked to David about Exodus and Deuteronomy and the cart and all the, I suspect it could have been a conversation like that. Get this straightened out. And David now is, let's go, let's get it. Verse 13, when those who were carrying, notice, were carrying the ark What's different there? Poles, carrying, guess they're Levites as well. We're not told their names. Look, look at this now. Carrying the ark out. When they had taken six steps. <laughs> what? Sacrifice to the Lord. Sacrifice a bull. So you're right here. One, two, three, four, five, six. Stop. Stop. And if you're the guys carrying, you're like, boss, we got a long walk. Stop. Sacrifice to the Lord. See, David? Sacrifice to the Lord, 
Honor him, holiness, purity, reverence for the Lord. Do you see it? It's an amazing picture. Six steps. <laughs> what a reverence for the holiness of God. we got to do God's work God's way. We can't do it the Philistines' way. Get rid of that cart. Go with the poles, Levites, six steps, sacrifice, and then it's fully returned. And while he and the entire household of Israel brought up the ark of God with shouts and the sound of trumpets. So that's how the ark of God gets returned to the people of God in the city of God to restore the presence of God to the center of it. It's a priority of the presence of God, and then there's a reverence for the holiness of God. And so I think these are two good checkpoints for us today. Like for me this week, I wrote down my, for myself, how, how, where am I at with this priority of the God's presence in my life? Success without presence, not an option. Where's my like worship barometer these days? An attentiveness to the things of God. And then how about for the holiness of God? You know, sin is nothing to flirt around with. We don't flirt around with the edges of sin, gang. A story like that, it's not. We're grateful for Jesus. We're thankful for his love and grace. It ought to motivate us all the more to live a life, not to go flirt around with the edges of sin because there's a lot at stake here. And is there a reverence for the holiness and the purity and the way God wants things to be? And he's just right about everything. And the sooner we can come to grips with, he's just right. Trust him. Do it his way. Don't do God's work the Philistines' way. So maybe a check on the holiness front. So worship team, come on back up. Here's how we're going to lead the rest of the service here. Team's going to lead us through a sequence of songs. And I just want to give you an opportunity to kind of put into practice the priority of the presence of God and a reverence for the holiness of God. And the team selected some songs to kind of help reinforce these themes. And then just to sit in the presence of God and maybe some reality gets reframed, or maybe if sin gets exposed, it gets confessed and covered in the grace of Jesus. And at the end, that we could be like the people of God here in 2 Samuel 6. Wouldn't it be great, the commentary on Eagle Church, be they worship God with all their might. Not a casualness in our worship, but an all-your-might kind of worship, whatever that looks like for you. But you know when it's an all-your-might, when your whole mind, soul, will, and heart are engaged, you know, and when it's not. And so this is a good time to say, Lord, with all my might, I want to enter in. I want to lift up my worship to you. And then as we do that, there might be this kind of the reverence for the holiness where God's presence presses in on us and says, hey, some stuff's out of bounds here and it needs to get reined in here. And that's what it's like to live everyday life with God. So let's stand up together. I'm going to pray for us. The team's going to enter in. Jesus, thank you so much for David. Thank you for his willingness for his willingness to lead and rule the way you want it done and the boldness he displayed and the way he led through retrieving the ark so quickly and then this scene. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond back to you, presence of God, people of God, ark of God, a passion for the worship of God. We offer it up to you now in Jesus' name.